0: Now we've fulfilled far more promises than we promised. I call it Promises Plus. <sighs> of course you do. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the
1: feeling that something right. We'll call it Bradcast I'm Plus. I'm scared in case I fall off
0: my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs let me us to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you yep yes, I'm stuck from in the
1: Pacifica Radio with you. in Los Angeles this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 yes, FM in LA up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove in Lancaster Pennsylvania on WLRI in Maui Hawaii on KAKU Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, and Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, and now. Red Bluff, and Redding, California's KFOI 90.9 FM. Awesome. Welcome aboard, guys. Also, of course, AM 950 KTNF in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on your trusty internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and other fine affiliates, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From Bradblog.com. I'm gonna underscore friendly today, Desi Doyen. Keep me <laughs> keep that in mind. Try to keep me as friendly as you can.
2: Okie dokie. We'll so do our my, best to work on that one. Yes,
1: yeah, so my just don't go uh, absolutely nuts. Let me start here. Two students were shot, and at least three others were wounded after a shooting in a classroom at Sal Castro Middle School here in the Westlake District of Los Angeles on Thursday morning. A 12-year-old girl was arrested and uh, taken in as a person of interest. She is now in custody, according to authorities. Sergeant Edward Bernal of the L.A. School Police Department said two students were shot, and the uh, the two main victims here, a 15-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl, were transported to a local hospital. The boy was shot in the head. He is said to be in critical but stable condition in an update just before airtime here. A trauma surgeon at uh, L.A. County uh, USC Medical Center says the boy was, quote, extremely lucky in that the bullet missed vital structures. He is expected to recover. That's the good news. Um, The female victim had a gunshot wound to the wrist. She's in fair condition. Two other students were also grazed by bullets, fortunately, They did not sustain significant injuries, uh, according to the medical team there. They are listed uh, Thursday afternoon in stable condition. The ages of those other patients, by the way, were 11 and 12 years old, according to the fire department. Multiple officials initially said the suspect was in custody, later described that student as only a person of interest. So we don't yet know she's described as a girl 12 years old. Uh, her name has not been released. The campus was on on uh, on lockdown as uh, police searched the middle school, the middle school. But LAPD said they did not believe there are any additional suspects outstanding. A motive remained unknown, at least as we go to air here. Uh, Jocelyn Lopez said her younger sister, a 13 year old in uh, seventh grader, was inside the classroom where the shooting took place and communicated with her through uh, through text messages throughout. It was really close to her, Lopez said, stating that her sister was sitting right next to two girls who were injured in that shooting. I uh, I raise that because, you know, it's it's going to disappear. You know, it's just another day in America. Another shooting in a school, this time a middle school. No big deal. Hardly even makes the national news anymore. By the way, it was just last week, just last week, when a 15-year-old at a high school in rural Kentucky killed two, uh, two students and wounded 19 others. Remember that? Did you miss that story? I suspect you're not alone if you did. We covered it at the time, but as I predicted that day, it would soon disappear entirely. As all of the uh, the other news, you know, sort of takes over and, and, and neither the president of the United States nor virtually any Republican in Congress have any interest in upsetting their donors at the terror enabling NRA by actually taking some sort of action to help to prevent this sort of daily ongoing massacre that is the U.S. gun violence epidemic. So, yeah, this story is sure to disappear just as, as as quickly as the Kentucky story, but at least I wanted to take the time to note it here right off the top before it's all but forgotten and we all turn away, you know, until the next mass shooting uh, massacre somewhere should be any minute now at this rate. Um, so, uh, you know what else was just last week? Just last week, the federal government shutdown. That's right. That was uh, just last week when Democrats caved after three long days and finally agreed to a short-term stopgap spending bill without protections for some 800,000 DREAMers facing deportation as early as March 5. Uh, that government spending bill expires, however, in just one week's time now when we're likely to have uh, the same fight all over again. We'll be joined by the week's David Ferris shortly to discuss the Democratic cave last week on this, whether we're likely to see another cave next week and what sort of deal, if any, can possibly be made with Republicans and Donald Trump at this point now that he's moved his goalpost for protecting those DACA kids that he endangered and that he is now holding as human shields to get his immigration reform wish list uh, done including $25 billion for a border wall that Mexico, just to remind you, that Mexico he had promised us over and over again that Mexico was going to pay for. So that uh, David joins us shortly. Also a bit later, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Yes. With some actual good news. Yes. Out of Puerto Rico. Yes, You never hear that uh, phrase uh, lately. This is true. So that is uh, coming up in a bit.
2: Plus some good news out of Jersey.
1: Uh, New Jersey. Yes. New Jersey. New Jersey's new governor. That's all uh, straight ahead. Well, ahead in a bit. Uh, But meanwhile... The Pennsylvania state Senate president said Wednesday he will not cooperate with the state Supreme Court's request to turn over data after it found that the state's congressional map was unconstitutionally gerrymandered. Joe Scarnati, Republican uh, Senate president pro tempore, said he would not turn over the data requested by the court. This is by the state Supreme Court. Mind you. He's just ignore. He won't do it. He's uh, uh, he said uh, in in light of the unconstitutionality of the court's order and the court's plan, uh, pl- uh, the court's plain intent to usurp the General Assembly's constitutionally delegated role of drafting Pennsylvania's congressional districting plan. Senator Scarnati will not be turning over any data identified in the court's order. That, according to his lawyers, in a letter to the court on Wednesday. The state Supreme Court had ruled uh, just also, I think, just last week, that the state's U.S. House congressional map was gerrymandered to the point that it was unconstitutional. And as a result, the state must draw a completely new map ahead of this year's elections, which they have been ordered to do and to do quickly, or the court said they would do it themselves. But the General Assembly was ordered to turn over files that, quote, contain the current boundaries of all Pennsylvania municipalities and precincts. They were ordered to do that by Wednesday, but they didn't. They just refused the Supreme Court's order. The Republicans who run the General Assembly in Pennsylvania, they refused to do so in what would appear to be, at least to me, a completely lawless act. Though this is not one uh, dissimilar from similar such violations of the rule of law and complete dismissals of, uh, uh, of of courts by Republicans, remember former Alabama State Supreme Court Justice Roy Moore, who lost in in December in his U.S. Senate. Uh, race in Alabama. He had to be removed from the bench twice because he refused to follow U.S. Supreme Court orders regarding the removal of a Ten Commandments monument that he had installed at the court. And then a couple of years later, he had to be removed once again because he refused to follow the Supreme Court order regarding uh, a same sex marriage. But apparently Republicans just simply do not care about the rule of law. They do not care about court orders. Apparently they are above all of that. They are lawless. They really are. Remember former Maricopa County, Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio? He ignored court orders to stop rounding up people who, uh, you know, who he believed to be undocumented immigrants simply because of the way that they looked. He was he was finally found in contempt of court for doing that. And he would likely have gone to jail had Donald Trump, the president of the United States, not pardoned him. Pardoned him for ignoring the courts, ignoring the rule of law, ignoring the lawful orders of a federal court. They don't care anymore. That's how bad this is getting. Republicans simply don't care. Arpaio was actually rewarded with a presidential pardon. For what he did and instead of being in federal prison today Joe Arpaio was running for the Republican nomination for the US Senate in Arizona this year instead Anyway back to Pennsylvania uh, where the Republicans had so wildly gerrymandered the state after the 2010 census that despite despite being a largely a 50-50 sing- swing state in Pennsylvania They now have 13 Republicans in the U.S. House versus just five Democrats in the U.S. House. And now the state Senate refuses to follow the state Supreme Court order to immediately redraw the map, and they won't even turn over files to the U.S. Supreme Court. GOP lawmakers in Pennsylvania Uh, earlier this month had asked the um, actually this was yesterday, so earlier in January had asked the U.S. Supreme Court to stop the state court's decision although it remains unclear on whether the federal constitutional argument that they are making will be well received in what is a state court ruling based on state laws and the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania but, you know, still the bid may work It certainly is likely to work to at least stall the order long enough to, uh, you know, try to make the argument, hey, we just don't have time to do it before the 2018 elections. That has so far worked in similar cases against similar unlawful gerrymandering by Republicans in Wisconsin and North Carolina in Texas and elsewhere. As the Republicans, uh, you'll recall, they also stole the U.S. Supreme Court, and that uh, stolen Supreme Court has delayed these lower federal court rulings, uh, ordering new maps in those states before the 2018 election, where primary uh, candidates, by the way, primary candidate filings are set to begin in just weeks in some states. The deadline to register to vote in Texas. For the U.S. House primaries, that's just days from now, by the way. The deadline to vote, if you want to vote in the Texas primaries, I believe is February 5. So these guys will game the system any way they can. It makes it quaint looking back to, remember those years there the rule of law Republicans used to pretend <laughs> under under Bill Clinton. He violated the rule of law. We care about the rule. So, you know, they will do any they'll game the system any way they can. They will unconstitutionally draw the boundary lines in their favor for these uh, U.S. House districts and local uh, state assembly districts. And then they will ignore lawful court orders when they are told to cut it out. And if they get in any trouble for it, they'll get a pardon from the president of the United States for it. So, yes, this rot begins at the top And it is working its way down. The filing at the U.S. Supreme Court by lawyers for the Republican state legislative leaders requests that the Supreme Court put on hold the state Supreme Court ruling while it considers Republicans' argument. Republicans who are ignoring that state Supreme Court. Despite Pennsylvania currently having uh, 13 Republicans in the House and just five Democrats, ...in the House, it has reliably voted Democratic in presidential races, with Democratic nominees uh, winning the state in every single election dating back to 1992 right up until uh, the state was a fierce battleground in 2016 and narrowly went to Donald Trump. Supposedly it went to Donald Trump in 2016. We will never know for sure because the state forces most of its voters to vote on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And the attempt made to try and hand count the paper ballots that do exist in that state and to forensically examine Those 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems, those attempts after the 2016 presidential election by Green Party candidate Jill Stein, they were all largely blocked in court by state officials and by terrible state laws that make it impossible. Virtually impossible in many cases, certainly completely impossible in many other cases where there is uh, simply nothing left to go back and, uh, and count and oversee. So the public can be sure who won and who lost an election, even an election as important as one for the president of the United States as said to have been very narrowly won by Donald J. Trump. So uh, we'll keep our eyes on what's going on in Pennsylvania. It just it blows me away. Here's some better news when it comes to voting uh, in, in Florida. There's something you don't hear. Uh, we spoke a few <laughs> days ago about the good news that a, a, a voter initiative, a ballot initiative to restore voting rights to some of the 1.5 million former felons, who have been kept off the voting rules for life by, uh, by the state law, by the state constitution.
2: Even though they have paid their debt to society. Correct.
1: They are still, by the, the state constitution uh, and by the whims of Republican Governor Rick Scott, who has the right to restore those voting rights on a case-by-case basis, they're still being left off the rolls. One and a half million potential voters who served their time long ago. But Rick Scott has not restored their right to vote. He constitutionally doesn't have to, even though they are out of jail, they're off parole, many of them for decades, with a clean record. But the the good news we reported a couple days ago on this was that two former felons in the state of Florida led an effort to get nearly one million signatures that are needed to put this initiative on the ballot this November to restore... Uh, to, to restore these voting rights, to actually change the Florida Constitution to restore those rights. Now, that uh, initiative will still have to pass, uh, has to get more than 60 percent of the vote, a high bar to change the, uh, the Florida Constitution. But we've got some additional good news now out of a federal court here. This is just within the past hour. A federal judge in Florida has struck down Florida's system, for determining which ex-felons have the right to vote. Handing an unexpected victory to advocates of broader voting rights, uh, reports P. Levy at Mother Jones. Florida is one of a, uh, a handful of states that permanently disenfranchises convicted felons. Uh, even after they've completed the terms of their sentence, she writes, the result is that more than 1.5 million Floridians are barred from voting, including 20% of voting age african americans 20 percent are barred from voting that by the way is compared to just 10 percent of the overall general uh, general population who are disenfranchised under this law that's already bad enough judge mark uh, mark walker's ruling on thursday does not address the legality of felon disenfranchisement in and of itself but rather the manner in which the state haphazardly restores voting rights to some former felons. In Florida, felons must individually apply to have their rights restored, and uh, they must implore the governor and his cabinet in person for their rights. That practice makes restoring a person's suffrage a personal decision by top state officials. It's up to them. Governors often determine whether to restore a citizen's voting rights based on totally unrelated matters like how religious they are, the number of traffic citations they've received. Some voting rights group, uh, uh, the the voting rights group uh, challenging Florida's regime, has argued in this case that sometimes Republican governors may be swayed to restore voting rights to ex-felons if they get the idea that they will vote for Republicans. Republicans. In the judge's uh, opinion released today, uh, he wrote, In Florida, elected partisan officials have extraordinary authority to grant or withhold the right to vote from hundreds of thousands of people without any constraints, guidelines or standards. The question now is whether such a system passes constitutional muster. It does not, writes Walker in his ruling. Uh, who found that Florida's process violates the First Amendment as well as the Fourteenth, which extends equal protection of the law to all residents? So there's some uh, encouraging news, encouraging election news for today. Uh, that uh, well doesn't make up for what went on in Pennsylvania, but uh, some good news for folks in the Sunshine State. We'll see if that hold. We'll, we'll see if uh, Republicans go and and appeal that ruling to make it easier to disenfranchise people. I suspect they will. All right. um, Before we get to our break here uh, and our guest, uh, Donald Trump on Thursday morning incorrectly claimed that his State of the Union speech on Tuesday was the most watched in history. The highest number in history, he tweeted, about the 45.6 million people who watched the speech on television. However, 48 million viewers tuned into Barack Obama's first State of the Union back in 2010 Uh, Trump's speech also trailed Bill Clinton's first State of the Union and George W. Bush's first State of the Union. Other than that, highest number in history. Well, uh, you know, given what a dunce Donald Trump appears to be, or given what a liar he appears to be, uh, what a liar he definitely is, take your pick, you would think the Democrats wouldn't have quite as much of a problem outwitting him in making deals on legislation. But maybe it's uh, tough to deal with somebody who does not deal in good faith. Democrats of late seem to be outwitting themselves, at least if their recent cave over the government shutdown is any indication. And that may not be a good sign for some 800,000 dreamers, children of immigrants brought here years ago illegally by their parents who will see their Obama-era DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, protection, Against deportation, they will see that run out, thanks to Donald Trump's reversal of Obama's uh, uh, DACA, just over one month from today. Unless Democrats can figure out how to win that battle when the government is once again set to run out of money without a deal between Democrats and Republicans just one week from today. Can they figure that out? It won't be easy. That story's next with David Ferris of the week. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
0: Dream, 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 dream,
1: dream Dream, dream, dream dream Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, everyone, uh, keep dreaming, everyone. Democrats, Republicans, dreamers alike. Remember the time that Republicans and Democrats could not agree on terms to extend a short-term federal spending bill? To keep the government open because Republicans refused to include protections for some 800,000 DREAMers now facing deportation as of March 5, thanks to Trump's decision last year to reverse the Obama-era DACA protections. Well, remember that time? That time that uh, the federal government was shut down? That was just last week. I know it seems forever ago and it only ended after Democrats caved in agreeing to a slightly shorter term stopgap spending bill that now expires next week, leading us likely to the same shutdown showdown that we saw just over one week ago, unless a solution to the DACA mess that Trump created can be somehow sorted out in time before the new February 8 funding deadline comes when the government will, again, be forced to shut down for lack of a spending bill. Now, there's a lot going on right now. All the Russia stuff, the fight over the House Republican so-called memo that they wrote to try and discredit the FBI and the DOJ and Special Counsel Robert Mueller's probe of Team Trump. Donald Trump says something stupid every day and picks a fight with new people and entire countries every day. The Korean Peninsula remains on tenterhooks as... Trump continues to threaten war there. There's a never-ending chain of deadly shootings and natural disasters. And partisans on both sides are preparing for the crucial 2018 midterm elections and much more. So, yeah, it's very difficult to determine what most needs to be covered each day, at least on this broadcast. But it sure looks to me like we're headed to another shutdown of the federal government that nobody's really talking about much of late, uh, and all the the hardships and dangers that come with such a shutdown. That seems to be where we're headed, unless some sort of deal can be struck, and struck quickly, that might both fund the government and protect those 800,000 Dreamers from imminent deportation at the beginning of March. But can a deal on immigration, much less government funding, uh, even be had? Or will Democrats uh, demand one and then cave once again as they did last week after two days of insisting no deal on DACA, then no deal to keep the government open? Well, in his first State of the Union address on Tuesday, Donald Trump laid out what he described as a four pillar proposal for immigration reform that while protecting more than a million dreamers who came here as children with their parents decades ago, and offering them a 12-year path to eventual citizenship. That proposal would also require Democrats agreeing to fund Trump's border wall on the the southern border for some $25 billion and would end much of our legal immigration system by ending our uh, or changing the so-called visa lottery and the family reunification program that has, for generations, allowed immigrants to sponsor close, direct family members for green cards, a process that can currently take more than a decade to happen, uh, as the line is very long for those uh, those green cards and has long required, yes, extreme background vetting of applicants, no matter what Donald Trump said in his State of the Union address on Tuesday night. But after the Senate Democrats caved a week or so ago following the uh, short government shutdown, Uh, In order to allow a short term spending bill, David Ferris at The Week wrote yesterday, Democrats voted inexplicably to reopen the government on basically the same terms offered to them Friday by a short term House continuing resolution. Only 16 Democrats held the line, including most of the party's serious 2020 contenders. On the bright side, Ferris writes, The Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, is now funded for six years, and Democrats have pocketed the truly worthless currency of a Mitch McConnell promise to hold an immigration vote. Yeah, at some vague time in the near future, supposedly. Ferris says, But the price was extraordinary. After prepping their activist base for a long shutdown fight, Key Democratic Party elites surrendered to fears that the White House was winning the messaging fight by holding Chip hostage to capitulation. There was very little evidence in the existing polling that this was the case, but Senate Democrats panicked and wagered that the best move here was to protect vulnerable red state Democrats by taking Chip off the table and fighting a pitched battle in February over DACA and only DACA. Well, It is now February, and that pitched battle over DACA and only DACA is about to be upon us, maybe, unless the Democrats decide to cave again. Here to discuss whether they are likely to cave again is David Ferris. He is a contributor at The Week. He's associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago, and the author of the upcoming book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. David Ferris, welcome back to the broadcast, sir.
3: Thank you so much for having me on again, Brad.
1: Always my pleasure. Uh, I want to talk about what is happening or what is about to happen in Congress, which very few people seem to be talking about right now. And whether we're headed into another shutdown or another Democratic uh, letdown, if you will, but uh, since you wrote about Trump's State of the Union on Tuesday night, and it eventually, I think, ties into all of this, I want to get your thoughts on that. Your piece on Wednesday at the week following uh, Trump's address on Tuesday argues that Trump squandered his State of the Union address. Okay, I will bite Mr. Ferris. How did Trump squander his State of the Union address as you see it?
3: Well, I mean, I I think he squandered it in a couple of different ways. Um, One is that he he didn't offer very much in the way of specific policy proposals aside from this immigration plan that he wants Congress to take up. So, the issues that he did talk about, whether that was um, whether that was opioids or whether that was clean coal, none of these things were attached to legislation. you know, and none of these things were attached to an actionable plan uh, or an actionable set of ideas mm-hmm. that his congressional allies could then take up. Um, and the evolution of the modern State of the Union suggests that this is a place, this is a really unique place and a unique opportunity for a new president uh, to kind of stake out a set of uh, policy issues for an agenda, mm-hmm. and then to, to kind of talk his, his congressional allies and even his congressional adversaries into cooperating on those things. So he talked for a long time, uh, amazingly, in my mind, without really saying very much of any substance <laughs> about, um, about most of the issues of the day. Um, And I also think, you know, he really missed an opportunity to present uh, a a more, a a message of greater unity to the country, Mm -hmm. you know, um, whether he was demonizing um, Latino immigrants or um, whether he was talking about uh, how we'd like to make it easier for cabinet secretaries to fire uh, civilian workers Mm -hmm. inside the bureaucracy. Uh, I thought it was a very negative speech, you know, I mean, aside from the call out to these, uh, to these human props in the audience. Yeah. Um, that's something that was started by Reagan, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> so it's pretty it's a pretty standard issue. Um, although, and, you know, although, although, uh, although
1: Reagan didn't uh, seem to bring in uh, grie- uh, grieving broken families and uh, parade them in the gallery, I was kind of I was uncomfortable and I was offended by that. I just wanted to toss that
3: in. I, yeah, it, no, it was gross. I mean, it was really gross the way that he's exploiting Re- Reagan brought people's grief like
1: that. Re- Reagan and 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 Clinton and Obama. It seems like they brought you know he- heroes and so forth, people who had. Overcome, you know, uh, uh, you know, ho- horrible things, and and you know, were were inspirational. These guys were just sort of, uh, you know, kind of pathetic props, uh, you know, crying in the uh, in the gallery. I I was offended by it. I, anyway,
3: yeah, I thought it was <laughs> distasteful. I mean, I you know, I, I obviously you have sympathy for these people. you know yeah, The sure. parents of the of the kid that was killed over in North Korea. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have sympathy for these people, but at the same time, you can you can judge the president and his allies harshly for for the way that they're they're using them and they're, mm-hmm. they're using their grief to to score political points you know and i yeah i didn't think that worked at all um,
1: but here's my uh, question uh... or at least my my pushback to whether uh... your your argument that he squandered it uh... was it really squandered uh, he didn't offend too many people he got more positive than negative notes, I think, uh, for his tone, I- I- for his tone, and and you know just generally uh, public approval for the speech, uh, which he seemed to win. Uh, he certainly won that approval of his base with his racist dog whistles. You can see the uh, former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke, who thanked him on Twitter for you know saying that Americans are dreamers too, and uh, and he probably disappointed his opponents, people like you, David Ferris, because. He didn't lose. uh, He didn't do anything incredibly stupid like, you know, called Chuck Schumer by uh, some vulgar name. So that generally seems like a win to me, if only because he didn't lose, which is sort of the bar we now measure Donald Trump by, I think.
3: Right, sure. I mean I, I mean I think part of this is that the the expectations bar for the president has mm-hmm. been has been set so low that you know like a turtle could crawl over it, you know? Yep. And uh so in that sense, in that narrow sense, you know, um, you know, he read the speech successfully, uh it had some high notes, um, you know, he got up there and he seemed like if you had just woken up from a coma yeah. and you didn't know who Donald Trump was and somebody was like, That's the president and you watched that speech, you'd been like, Okay, well that was fine. <laughs> right. You know? Um but I think the you know, I I think that the State of the Union has uh, has more important components than uh, than winning you you know, know. or doing well in these sort of like post speech polls. I yeah. think it's I think it's a lost opportunity for his agenda, and I think you can see that confusion in in the Republican caucus that's meeting now in, mm-hmm. in West Virginia to talk about their their plans. And the problem is they're not they're not getting real guidance from the president uh on most of these issues right? right it's like we want to fight the opioid addiction crisis but the president has no ideas about how to actually do that you know um and he just doesn't seem to have any other ideas about the economy uh which is amazing to me because he spent a significant portion of the speech talking about uh economic developments of the past uh-huh. year so in, in my mind uh, you know i'm shocked he didn't talk about entitlement reform mm-hmm. you know uh, I mean, not that I want them to do that. Right. But, I mean, from from their perspective, uh, it's just really surprising to me that there weren't some more specific economic plans for how uh, the Republican Party plans to keep the ball rolling with the economy, which is which is about the only thing that this presidency has going for it right now. Well, is 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 the expanding economy?
1: There was uh, one place where he did lay down some finally some specific uh, policy proposals, and that's on uh, on immigration. Finally, you wrote at the uh, at the week. Uh, after the uh, after the government shut down a little over a week ago, uh, after it had just gotten underway, the Democrats at the time held all the cards in that fight, which they eventually folded on. And one of those cards was that Trump had no real immigration policy on the table. He had, you know, vague ideas about more border security, uh, of course, about the wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. Well, now it seems he does have a specific proposal. Here was, let me play this uh, from his State of the Union, uh, describing that new proposal, and then we'll get your thoughts on that.
0: We presented Congress with a detailed proposal that should be supported by both parties as a fair compromise, one where nobody gets everything they want, but where our country gets the critical reforms it needs and must have. The first pillar of our framework generously offers a path to citizenship. For 1.8 million illegal immigrants who were brought here by their parents at a young age, that covers almost three times more people than the previous administration covered. Under our plan, those who meet education and work requirements and show good moral character will be able to become full citizens of the United States over a 12-year period. The second pillar fully secures the border. That means building a great wall on the southern border. The third pillar ends the visa lottery, a program that randomly hands out green cards without any regard for skill, merit, or the safety of American people. The fourth and final pillar protects the nuclear family by ending chain migration. Under the current broken system, a single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives. Under our plan, we focus on the immediate family by limiting sponsorships to spouses and minor children. These four pillars represent a down-the-middle compromise and one that will create a safe, modern, and lawful immigration system.
1: Well, there you have it, David Ferris. At least he was specific on those uh, on those policy proposals. And it is those uh, those proposals that I guess are now going to play into uh, whether or not the government stays open next week. Uh, he he says uh, very quickly, "Let me get your thoughts on on that proposal." No one gets everything, but it's it's otherwise it's right down the middle.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up because it highlights to me why it was such a mistake, such a huge mistake for Democrats to cave and come back to the table and reopen the government, because what it did was it allowed the president and his allies to seize the initiative here and to release this plan to the public. I mean, I can't even, it's just shocking to me that Democrats didn't think ahead and be like, what's coming up, the State mm-hmm. of the Union, and this will allow the president to set the parameters of debate. Um, this is, I think, a, a couple of, of awful proposals um, the one that makes me want to throw uh, a book against the wall the most is this <laughs> uh, the, the idea about this idea of chain migration, right? Which is really a process of family unification. Mm-hmm. Um, this is personal to me. I married into an Iranian American family that, that um, migrated here gradually over time, using precisely these procedures of mm-hmm. bringing um, you know siblings uh, and, and other relatives over to join the family. And I really, it really makes me livid. Uh, it makes, makes makes my skin crawl that he's saying that this is a way to protect nuclear families, right? Which is Because what it actually is is a way to isolate nuclear families from their extended families overseas. And it's, it's really disgusting. Unfortunately for the Democrats, um, I think that all, all four of these things pull fairly well, right? And so when they decided to fold and reopen the government, mm-hmm. um, they went from a situation where they were fighting for one issue that they had a 53-point advantage on, and that's DACA and the Dreamers to a situation where now we have multiple immigration proposals thrown together, um, and they all uh, you know, uh, at least have a good plurality polling for the president. Mm-hmm. Okay? I don't think people have thought a lot about you know, chain migration, and it, it depends on how you frame it. Right? Of course, we prefer to use the, the term family unification, mm-hmm. and I would, I, would, I would expect that that would change the polling, depending on how you talk about it. However, the Democrats don't have a clear political advantage on any of these four things um so that that to me is the is the biggest uh and it's it can't be undone mistake that happened uh, uh, last week. I can't believe that was last week, by the way. It feels <laughs> know, like 17 years unfolded. <laughs> I know,
1: it really does. So, uh, you know, they're using, yeah, they use the uh, the, the phrase uh, chain migration. The media, by the way, seems to go go along with that and and use mm-hmm. that when it is really family uh, reunification. He claims that it allows unlimited family members when, in fact, it's a very long process. I think, you, you, you know, it, it's, it's not unlimited family members uh, no. And and then the visa lottery. He talks about randomly handing out green cards without regard to skill or background. It takes people more than a decade if they're lucky enough to to get their number drawn in that thing, and then they have to go through all sorts of uh, you know background checks and and everything else. So yeah, it's it's a bunch of lies. But the fact that the Republicans seem to have gotten the upper hand here is kind of remarkable. You wrote before the shutdown that Dems at that time were holding all the cards. Um, were they holding all the cards? Because they were already, Chuck Schumer was already in there uh, offering money, he says, uh, for for Trump's border wall.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, over the course of a year we all get to write one article that doesn't age well, right? Um, and <laughs> so, uh, looking back at that article, obviously that's not what happened. Um, I, I would argue, I think, that the Democrats had much more significant leverage then they ended up thinking that they did. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the polling uh, in the days after the shutdown happened and during the shutdown, it was clear that the public blamed the Republican Party for this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not clear to me why that polling did not reach the Senate leadership or whether they were looking at very specific polling in places, uh, um, in places where red state Democrats are up for election mm-hmm. this year, like Missouri or something, and they didn't like right. what they saw there. Maybe that's possible. But I think it's really a mistake uh, strategically to think that we're going to save Claire McCaskill and Heidi Heitkamp by by allowing them to to commit heresy against the party line in a few of these instances. That did not work in 2014. It didn't work in 2010. It hasn't worked for Republicans. Right? The, those senators are going to they're going to sink or swim based on how the national party is doing and based on how jazzed Democrats are to turn out for this election. So, and, yeah.
1: And and yet. <laughs> We're heading to the same place again next week, David, uh, and yeah. uh, the same fight. And uh, although it's as as you know, you you note uh, even worse for the Democrats because Trump has had the time to make this case to actually come up with a plan. You know, one of the things uh, before the shutdown that Mitch McConnell had complained about was that they didn't they didn't know what the White House wanted. Well, now they know what they want, and so uh, I guess. No one has a crystal ball here, but um, are we headed towards a shutdown again? Are, are the Democrats going to able even to, to has anything changed for the better that will allow them to stand strong here? Or are uh, they going to cave again? And these DACA kids, I mean, never mind the politics here. We're talking about 800,000 at least, uh, 800,000 people who have lived here for decades who I can't even imagine what they're thinking about, what they're you know facing beginning March 5, unless some kind of deal is made.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're facing every day they wake up in existential terror, right? And that's, yeah. that's, what, that's what we're doing to people. That's what the president has done by, by making this, um, this very human issue a political football to try to get what he wants out of, out of this. Um, I don't have a crystal ball either. Um, I think I don't see the signals from the Democratic leadership that they are willing to shut down the government again over DACA. Um, what their backup plan is, is a total mystery to me. Um, but I think it's also worth considering that the Republicans, the, the Republicans in the Senate and the House don't seem to be unified on this question either. And so what I would say is that if, if congressional Republicans are able to deliver a version of the president's proposal. And put the democrats in a position where they are the make or break votes on that proposal uh i think that they are probably checkmated however <laughs> um i don't think that that can happen i mean because if you look at the house of representatives you have this caucus of hardliners and and uh and, and maniacs who are not going to vote even for for the for the one piece of this uh this proposal that the Democrats would like which is which is the path to citizenship for for the dreamers mm-hmm. and and some other people too um and uh you know everything that we're hearing out of the House of Representatives suggests that that bill does not have a future there, and so what what seems likely to happen to me uh is that at least in the House uh, the president's proposal is going to get pulled to the right and it's going to get pulled so far to the right that it's not going to appeal to even enough Senate Republicans um, for it to pass the Senate right. And that anything that comes out of the Senate is going to be too far left to get through the House. Um, so I think the big key strategic thing to do here for Democrats is to make sure that they don't end up getting blamed for this, for the president's proposal falling apart. And I think the president's proposal is going to fall apart. Um, and I'm not uh, sure exactly how they can avoid taking that blame. Yeah, um, I don't either. But at the end of the day... At the end of the day, the, 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 over, the overarching issue here is the Dreamers, um, because their status is up soon. Mm-hmm. On March 5th, as you noted, yeah. people are going to start getting deported. Um, and there, there was a legal decision in January um, that put a stop to this, but I'm, I'm very skeptical that that's going to be upheld at the higher levels of the courts. So um, this is life and death for the Dreamers. And I think that there's a scenario here where Congress is paralyzed, And then the president is going to have to make the decision uh, about whether he wants to oversee the deportation of the dreamers before the midterm elections. And I suspect that he doesn't want to do that. And I've thought from the beginning that there's a possibility that the way that this might end is by President Trump simply putting the DACA program back into place and quietly walking away. And I'm afraid that at this point that might be the best that Democrats can hope for in terms of an outcome for this particular skirmish. What they really need to do is take back Congress and take back the initiative. Yeah,
1: and normally that's what, you know, we can say, well, if you're unhappy with all of this stuff that we talk about, that, you know, we talk about on this show, then, you know, make sure you get the hell out and vote this November and change the game in Congress. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, in this case, we don't necessarily have until uh, November 6th this year, because I know the Dreamers certainly don't. As of March five, um, you know, they, they may start uh, deportations. And the fact that we are now, David Ferris, that you uh, suggest are, uh, the best possibility here might be for Donald Trump to essentially do the right thing. <laughs> I think you've just scared yeah. the hell out of uh, whatever listeners we have left at that point. Uh, David, uh, really appreciate, uh, appreciate you joining us here today. Always enjoy your work at theweek.com. And you can uh, find uh, David, I recommend you find him on the Twitters as well, at David M. Ferris. Uh, thanks, Dave. Stay in touch. We will talk soon, I suspect.
3: All right, Brad. Always a pleasure being on the show. Th- Take care. Thank
1: you, sir. <laughs> Okay, a quick break, and we uh, are back. You know what? I just yep. want to say
2: one thing really yep. quick. I think David has a very apt warning for us here, and it doesn't really appear that right now the Democrats have prepared themselves or anybody else for the messaging war that the Republicans are going to lay out in a tsunami for all of us coming out. The, the
1: messaging war they're already laying out yes. that they laid out in the in the State of the Union. Uh, yeah, what? Democrats unprepared? How often does that happen? All right, quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. (laughs)
2: And thanks. I'll
1: stop the world, melts with you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh, grist.org meteorologist on uh, Eric Holthouse on Tuesday, I think this was. Uh, he tweeted, Puerto Rico, day 131. More than one million people still without power. That's 31 percent of the island. Hundreds of thousands still without clean water. Still a humanitarian emergency, he writes. And yet FEMA has decided to officially shut off food and water aid on Wednesday. Wow. He wrote uh, justifiably. Well, uh, FEMA got a lot of blowback for that on Wednesday. They were claiming that, oh, this is good for the. This will help the economy because people will go to the grocery store instead of getting all that free food and water. They'll go buy it. Uh, Never mind the fact that many of these people can't even get to a grocery store at this point.
2: And they don't have refrigeration because they don't have electricity for the food that they would buy.
1: Right. Or if they do, if they're lucky enough to have a generator, they're spending all of their money currently to keep that generator. Going, You know, paying for diesel fuel. Uh, So FEMA got a lot of blowback for that, as I said. uh, And happily now, it appears that they have folded on those plans uh, as discussed, along with much more on our latest Green News report.
0: Tonight, I'm calling on Congress to produce a bill that generates at least one point five trillion dollars for the new infrastructure investment. That our country so desperately needs.
2: In his first State of the Union, Trump proposes big infrastructure spending. But there's a catch. FEMA says oops. FEMA is not ending emergency food and water distribution in Puerto Rico. Maine's governor bans all new wind energy projects. Plus,
1: there is tremendous urgency in our need to act.
2: New Jersey's new governor goes all in on offshore wind and cutting carbon emissions.
1: All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm
2: Desi Doyen. Stand
1: by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
0: To everyone still recovering in Texas, Florida... Louisiana, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. We are with you, we love you, and we always will pull through together.
2: That is going to be a comforting
1: message to the people of Puerto Rico once they have electricity to turn on their TVs. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, big news with Trump's first State of the Union address, but. Bigger news, I think in Puerto Rico. Uh,
2: yes, some very good news. Contrary to news reports, FEMA says it is not shutting off food and water aid to Puerto Rico. A FEMA spokesman said Wednesday that an official mistakenly said distribution of emergency food and water aid was going to conclude. That caused a huge uproar since, of course, nearly a million Puerto Ricans are still without electricity more than four months after Hurricane Maria hit.
1: It was not a mistake. They announced they were going to stop emergency food and water to Puerto Rico, but I'm glad they've backtracked. Indeed. So, I'll shut up.
2: Meanwhile, President Trump said nothing about climate change or the environment in his first State of the Union address on Tuesday. I'm shocked. But he did praise himself and his administration for rolling back clean air and clean water regulations and undoing President Obama's climate and energy policies. And he also apparently doesn't include the booming U.S. clean energy industry in his definition of American energy.
0: We have ended the war on American energy and we have ended the war On beautiful, clean coal.
2: Now, it's an inconvenient truth that the U.S. coal industry remains in terminal decline because of the U.S. natural gas industry and the rise of renewable energy. And the Obama administration is responsible for the tiny amount of clean coal technology that currently exists in the United States. Trump also floated an impressive-sounding $1.5 trillion plan to repair the nation's aging infrastructure. But there's a catch. There's
1: always a catch, with this guy.
2: In past decades, the federal government would put up 80% of the cost of major infrastructure projects, but Trump's plan offers up only 200 billion in federal funding. That's less than 20% of the cost stretched out over 10 years.
0: Every federal dollar should be leveraged by partnering with state and local governments and where appropriate, tapping into private sector investment to permanently fix the infrastructure deficit.
1: So he's going to force state and local governments to pay for the bulk of this, along with private companies who will profit from this infrastructure, correct?
2: Exactly. That means that cash-strapped states and cities will have to either raise taxes, sell off public assets, or privatize those projects to raise the money. Now, that could be a hard sell since Trump's $1.5 trillion infrastructure proposal could have been paid for by the $1.5 trillion tax cut that was passed by Republicans, just last month. Good point. Meanwhile, in New Jersey, six years ago, former Republican Governor Chris Christie withdrew from a multi-state cap-and-trade compact called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative or REGI. On Monday, the state's new Democratic Governor, Phil Murphy, began the process of re-entering REGGI. The cap-and-trade system raises revenue by incentivizing polluters to cut their carbon emissions. A recent study calculated that in the six years after leaving REGGI, New Jersey lost out on a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue. And
1: as I broke in an exclusive at the time back in 2011 when I obtained secret audio tapes of Chris Christie addressing the Koch brothers, it was in fact after meeting with David Koch that Chris Christie decided to pull out of that regional greenhouse gas initiative.
2: Yep. And also on Wednesday, Governor Murphy signed an executive order expanding and accelerating construction of wind energy projects off the Jersey Shore.
1: Clean energy and good jobs. This is how we make our economy stronger and fairer.
2: Murphy also said the ambitious target increases the likelihood that wind turbine manufacturers will choose to build factories in New Jersey to supply those projects. But finally, Maine's Republican Governor Paul LePage is going in the opposite direction. LePage, a longtime critic of wind energy, signed an executive order banning all new wind energy projects in Maine to, quote, protect its natural beauty but he's totally okay with offshore drilling.
1: Congratulations once again to Paul LePage, the nation's dumbest governor for much more on all of these stories check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com i'm brad friedman and
2: i'm desi doyan
1: and this has been your green news report the wind. i'm still running against the wind. You know, I, I need to add a correction there. Paul LePage, I called him the dumbest gover- governor in the uh, in the country. I, I need to apologize. He's the dumbest governor in the history of the country. <laughs> but uh, Chris Christie, not dumb at all, but did lose. How much did he lose? for it, the state In of- total,
2: it was 279 billion dollars in revenue that New Jersey lost out on in just six years, and that's not including, you know, what happened in Maine when Paul LePage put that ban on wind turbines and mm-hmm. wind uh, projects out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There. there was a Norwegian company That was going to bring uh, Their wind energy project to Maine They turned away from Maine And gave $200 million to Scotland Instead
1: So these states are losing all of this money It's just amazing And yes, you can thank uh, the Koch brothers and David Koch for that If you want to uh, check out my exclusive You can hear the audio of David Koch Talking about his meeting with Chris Christie And uh, all of that uh, Just go to bradblog.com Or look up Bradblog uh, The Chris Christie Coke Tapes. Uh, The the whole transcript and the audio is there and also over at Mother Jones where I uh, broke uh, part of that story as well. I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, David Ferris of the week and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is, as always, greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free. At Bradblog.com, though we run only on your help and your support. So uh, my thanks to those of you who have stopped by Bradblog.com slash donate to help us try to continue doing this every day over your public airways. If you haven't stopped by Bradblog.com slash donate, what's the hold up? Just asking for a friend. Uh, you can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.